Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. It has not been a bad year for the American actor David Krumholtz. First, he gets the best reviews of his career for feeding slices of orange to Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer in the Christopher Nolan blockbuster. And now, Lousy Carter has arrived. After a career stretching back to childhood, defining Christmas for a generation of American kids in The Santa Claus, and shining in the frankly brilliant Adam's Family Values, through a long period as a supporting actor, comedian, a star of stage, and lead in the hit TV show Numbers, David has now moved into the center of the cinematic frame with Lousy Carter. Directed by Bob Byington, the long-suffering Indio tour from Austin, is the story of Lousy, a man of unrealized potential confronting and embracing death as an excuse to try one last time to achieve something small in his life. Lousy Carter, you play a guy who describes himself as he was once a child prodigy. He was a prodigy. As a former child actor, could you see yourself in Carter in that way? Wow. Um, My ego was very tiny when I was young. (laughs) I had gotten really lucky becoming an actor. Literally was discovered haphazardly sort of by accident and thrown onto a Broadway stage when I was 13. So Adam's Family Values was two years after that. And it was a very busy two years. So once I started working, I was off to the races. And I was just blown away by the privilege of it all. I I grew up a major movie fan. I, I saw two movies a weekend. I saw every 80s comedy that you can imagine I saw it. Anything obscure, I was there in theaters with my dad, who didn't know what else to do with me but take me to movies. And I had studied the work of people like Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd, and but I wasn't uh, studying f- for any other reason than more of a, a, a clinical sort of a pro, like critical study. And then I became an actor. And I realized, oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm the one, th- I'm not scared. Mm. I was still sort of getting over the fact that I, I, I had some inner bravery that I didn't realize I had. So it was all very much an exploration that, that time. I didn't feel like I was peaking or that I, you know, I had no, to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was doing sure. other than just having a lot of fun and thinking, boy, am I lucky? Like, wow, this is crazy. So it was all, you know, very humbling. But yeah, I didn't consider myself a prodigy by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I, I consider Looking back, I absolutely was. I mean, I was a stunningly present <laughs> actor at the age of 15. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lazzy Carter... If you put that much energy and time into playing somebody that's sad, mm. does that make you sad? Uh, I didn't see him as sad. Oh, what did you yeah. see him as? I saw him as free, released, if you will. You know, he gets the death sentence. He gets the the news that he's going to die. And I could have played it burdened and, you know, 
And certainly there are shots where you get the idea, you know, shots of me and riding trains and walking and I look kind of pensive. But it's more pensive than sad. I felt that this was a story. If you follow, if you, if you connect the dots, it's a story about a guy who is not well liked by not only his friends, but his ex-girlfriend and his family. He's not well liked. And he has set up a very unpleasant reputation for himself. And now he has this, this thing that sort of validates in a way mm. his way of being, which is that he, he's going to die. And what does it matter? You know, and he doesn't try to be extra nice from that point forward. He's just still very much himself, but he's got his own little secret, which he can secretly hold over everyone, you know. It's one of those things of you'll miss me when I'm gone. Mm. You know, you'll you'll attack me when I'm here, but you'll miss me when I'm gone. And boy, are you going to be shocked? It's sociopathic, psychotic, really. Um, but he, you know, I I I always read the script as someone who is released, who the news wasn't so bad. He found out he was going to die. It's not so bad for him. He's done anyway. You know, he's burned a lot of bridges. And so he has these two very simple goals. He wants to teach his favorite book, teach a grad class about his favorite, favorite novel, and get laid. And, you know, he barely gets laid, or he does get laid, but he gets in trouble for it. The, the, the teaching of his novel goes to crap. I mean, his, his students could care less. And the one student that really cares actually thinks the book isn't that great. Yeah. <laughs> and so it all just is more confirmation that, yeah, it's time to go. So that when he does find out that he's not going to die, that's when I would imagine if there were more sort of scenes of story between that moment and the moment that he actually, you know, gets whacked, there would be some sadness. Now he, he didn't have this torch anymore. He didn't have this burden to bear, you know. I think people... He's not kind of elevated by tragedy. Yeah, I mean, look, exactly. I think he identifies with the misery of it. He's, you know, he identifies with the misery and he's happy to it. It's, it's a natural fit. I think it's really, really funny that when he finds out he's, he's going to die that... His goal is to complete an animated project based on a book that he hasn't explored whether he can do it legally or not. Right, right, right. He's just, he doesn't care. What's the worst that could happen? He'll be dead, you know? So, so I don't see him as sad. I see him as, as, as validated in a weird sort of sick way. But it depends on how you look at it, whether it's sick or not. You know, some people have not much to live for, you know? Some people's lives are so complicated. Mm. Uh, or their personalities are so complicated that they have a hard time fitting into any category in life that makes life harder. So death is at, at least, you know, the end of that torture. So I, that's how I played it, at least. I, I didn't want to play sadness, and Bob didn't want me to play any sadness. That would have been maudlin and it's also in a comedy or in any, even a drama, you don't want to tell the audience how to feel. You know, were there to be some sort of lamenting, crying scene where my character breaks down? I think then you're saying to the audience, this is sad. He's sad. So you should be sad, too. That's a silly thing to do. And also, uh, it's a comedy, man. You know, yesterday at the Q&A, people were saying the comedy we're asking, they were saying what well, the comedy is about is a, it's a satire and a statement about uh, about the state of America. 
And and Bob said, that's only your perception. (laughs) And I said, look, guys, it's one joke. It's a really simple joke. Guy finds out he's going to die, then finds out he's not going to die, then dies. That's the joke. And if you if you look at it as simply as that, it's it's not even a movie about emotion. No, you know, it's. Uh, I mean that that's that's the that's the tonal joke running through it. Right, the, it's the, cold. Yeah, it's a cold hard reality. He finds out that you know he can shoot his mother into space, his mother's ashes. You know, at the end of the film, when he is being put in Folgers cans, when his ashes are being the guy smoking a cigarette, you get the sense that some of the ashes dropped into you know <laughs> into the Folgers can with you know. It's, it's, it's a, we, we, we complicate life. Why complicate death? You know? Yeah. Why not, you know, bury your mom at a bowling alley? Yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> Who's to stop you? Freedom, baby. I thought that was a really great scene. Uh, mm, the, the, the eulogy, I think is, is really fantastic. You know, it's funny when I, the, the first cut uh, of the eulogy, I really didn't like it. And last night it played really well to an audience. It needed an audience uh, for me to understand it oddly. First time I watched it at home, I thought this, I don't know if this works. I'm surprised really I would, worked. I would have thought that one well, page did it jump out to you? Cause it feels to me the, like the center point of the character. Yeah, no, on page it worked. And in the moment it felt good. But then when I watched it back, you know, it's also too much me, you know, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. for me to, for me to swallow. How much you know? can you normally take? Not this much. Yeah. This is a lot of me. I try very, I have to try very hard to eliminate myself from the equation when I'm watching a film that I'm in. And sometimes it takes more than one viewing to do that because it is you and, you know, it's your essence. And it's also in your, in my, in my mind, my successes and my mistakes. You know, I watch, oh, I did that good. Oh, I could have done that better. You know, no one's thinking about that because no one knows what my standards are mm. uh, for me other than me. So. Did Bob Boynton write it with you in mind? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. No. He had another actor in mind who is a tall, strapping, handsome young man. <laughs> and that would have been an interesting way to go because then you, uh, the audience would have possibly applied some aesthetic ego to that character. Mm. You know, he, he wasn't so frumpy and schlubby and chubby. Um, originally, we had discussed me playing Kaminsky, the best friend, which I felt I was a total shoe-in for um, and would have been easy. When he did say, we want you to play lousy, I thought, I'm completely wrong for this role. And I find that it really helps me to think that way about roles. Okay. You know, um, something good comes out of me when I, when I think I'm, this is wrong and I'm, we're, I'm, we're making a mistake here. Uh, what are you raising your game or is it, is it tickling something deep inside your soul? It's tickling something. Yeah. It's, 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 it becomes a fight. Mm. It's motivating, you know, becomes a, a fight against my own insecurities and it becomes a mission that I'm on. How do I complete this? film feeling satisfied when I'm starting the film feeling totally out of sorts and, and not comfortable in the character skin. So yeah. It must be quite a lot of pressure to, to have a role that's so central to a production because yeah. kind of lives or dies on your shoulders to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, I look, I like the, uh, I like being king shit on a set. <laughs> not going to lie about that. I'm a good leader. Does that leader. mean you just get your salad first? Yeah, basically. Yeah. 
I'm a good leader and I, and I like rallying people nice. around the making of the film. That's a fun thing. I like that responsibility. I also enjoy not having that responsibility. It, it, uh, it, there's no, I don't have a preference in that regard, but, um, but in terms of carrying, you know, I, I don't know, you know, actors get more credit than they deserve for performances you know, roles are sometimes written so specifically, so nuanced mm. in such a nuanced manner that all an actor has to do is get out of the way of the role rather than apply too much of himself to it or too many ideas. I've seen actors that do that and I've done it in certain circumstances when I felt it was needed. But frankly, I don't, like choosing to do films that I know I'm going to have to do that for. Mm -hmm. I'd rather come in, get out of the way and service the script, service the writing. That to me is paramount. And in this case, Bob wrote an extremely specific character archetype with plenty of clues about who he is because he's an open book. He talks mm. about his life throughout the entire movie and who he thinks he is and who he is. And, um, you know, it's all about his identity. And also on this one, I found that it helped me to, and I always think of things this way. Everyone's a character, even the most dull, lifeless, shallow person is a character. Thank you. That, yes, you're welcome. I was going to say. No, but um, for me, it's about finding the one thing that then kind of, it's almost like uh, playing a piano and finding the key that defines the song, the sure. one note that defines the yeah. song, that identifies it as, as, as oh, that's, that's Paul McCartney, you know. In this, you know, I found scrunching my face, <laughs> stupid little deliberate trick helped inform what came out with the dialogue. So I scrunched my face a lot. It's a trick. It's like a little, I have a bag of tricks. That's yeah. all that acting is really. Actors are terrible. They say, you know, oh my God, I suffered for this. It's a bag of tricks. The only, the only job I've ever suffered for was the last job I did, which required great sort of Olympian strength. Which job was that? It was a, I did a Broadway play called Leopoldstadt. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, played the central character in it on Broadway. And that, that got me because you're so exposed on stage. Mm -hmm. But with a film, it's just a bag of tricks. You just got to know your face tricks. Face scrunching. Face scrunching and hiding, hiding into the character, hiding from the camera and then bringing yourself back into the camera so that by the time you do, people have been going, oh, he's been hiding all, there he is. Oh, he's gone again. That is a good trick. It's a trick. <laughs> it's a trick. It's easy. Did you reread The Great Gatsby for this? No. <laughs> Did I reread it? Did you read it full stop? Did you watch the Baz Luhrmann film? I saw the Baz Luhrmann film in theaters. Yeah. That's it. Why should I read the book? I saw the film. It's just straight up a better medium. I, I have a zero attention span. It's terrible. Not much for a reader? It has to really, really uh, uh, seep into my soul. So not undiscovered, slept on Nabokov gems? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> I think that also one of the funnier jokes uh, in, in the premise of this is the idea that somebody would make an animated film and be rewarded by being given a literature class. Yeah, right. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. It's but easy. he was hired on the strength of potential never realized. 
another line. Yeah, it's a good line that yeah. Bob has written, and I remember yelling at Bob about that one because it's impossible. It was impossible to memorize. Okay, I was hired on the strength of the idea of potential never real. That's a tough line to to get right, and uh, I also thought, what does it mean? You know, he was he was hired on the strength of the idea of potential never realized. It's a roundabout way of saying they thought I was something, but I wasn't, you know. I, I like it because it's both confessional and defensive. It is. It's, 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 there was potential there, but I didn't, I just didn't realize it. You know, I didn't, it never got actualized. It's, it's a self-loathing comment. And at the same time, it is him going, by the way, I could have been. You know. But clearly he could have, right? Clearly there was mm -hmm. like a bright light there at some point because a lot of glamorous women are interested in him. He's got a stalker. You don't get a stalker, a stalker for nothing. Yes. I mean, yeah. And it, yeah, he's, he's clearly, someone was impressed with his film, all too impressed. Um, but, I, you know, uh, I wonder if the stalker is only stalking him because, you know, the stalker's reason for stalking is, oh, I, I love your your animated film. But it's more that he... He was his friend and Lousy abandoned him. You know, they were two nerds together. I mean, Lousy realizes, oh, that's that guy. And, and, and he was the nice, he was the only guy that was nice to me. And I am now brushing him off. It's kind of uh, the penalty for not liking people. You know, Lousy, Lousy is like, he just doesn't like anyone and is, and he, and considers himself too precious to be around anyone and give anyone his time. But I know that Bob wrote it from a place of perpetual embarrassment. Lousy, for as eloquent as he is about describing himself and hyperbolic about it, I know that Bob wrote Lousy from a place of deep embarrassment. This is a defective man, a mm. defective character. And that's something I also related to heavily. And one of the reasons I enjoy working with Bob, because we have that in common. I live in a state of perpetual embarrassment. So maybe the reason that Lousy doesn't hang out with Dick Anthony or, or is because he's just, he doesn't think he's worth being around anybody. I think, I think the best way to watch Lousy Carter is with some empathy for Lousy. You're told the whole time in the movie, this is a guy who has pissed off his friends, who doesn't care about cheating, you know, with his best friend's wife and all this stuff. And he, he was mean to his girlfriend. He left her in a lurch, owed her money. You know, he leaves a trail of, of resent in his path. But who doesn't? It's, it's very honest. It's a very honest, almost autobiographical, as autobiographical as a piece as Bob has ever written. So, is Lousy a real first name? I fuck if I know. I don't ask these questions to Bob. You know why? Because when you do, he gets upset. So don't ask me that. For a while, he was saying, I wrote it from my unconscious. <laughs> and I would say, you're, You mean your subconscious? And he would say, No, my unconscious. And I said, Dude, that doesn't make any sense. If you're unconscious, you're, not con you're literally asleep or you're passed out. You mean your subconscious. Fine, my subconscious. <laughs> I wrote it from my un, un, my unsub, my sub, un, my con, I wrote it. And I don't know why I wrote it, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. So I don't, I don't get into arguments with him like that. It feels like he's got a bit of a troop. 
Yeah, Kevin Corrigan, uh, Martin Starr, you know, his regulars. You know, he's very specific with his tastes. I don't know why he likes me, uh, honestly. Maybe he saw Adam's family values. Maybe that's it. It might be that. Because he tends to love more sort of off-kilter, offbeat people, and I don't know if I am that. I don't know what I am. So if I, whatever it is, I, I'm not questioning it. It was a job. Someone gave me a job at the end of 2021 when all hell had broken loose and we were still getting over the pandemic. It was December. There was nothing else going on. What the fuck? Why shouldn't I do it? Actors come up with such bullshit. <laughs> it's amazing to me. You listen to an actor go, wow, I felt that this was a way for me to communicate how I feel about this per- bullshit. You took a job. Yeah, you felt it was a way for you, you to pay You were bored, you had nothing to do. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding? All right, well look, thank you very much That's for it. joining us. Yeah, wonderful. Good. A great thanks to David. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production, hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell.